I'm so grateful to our staff. I say this over and over because I mean it. They add so much. They are so on point. They help us to focus our services of worship. Mark's music today has been wonderful. And if you missed my sermon, I hope you didn't miss Dan's because he said what I needed him to say. He said the same thing I'm trying to say in different words. Thank you to our staff. We spent the season of Epiphany, the last four or five Sundays uh, dealing with the Psalms. We will spend the season of Lent looking at the gospel text in our lectionary selections. Today, we turn to the Gospel of Mark, the first chapter. This is a text that we read uh, in January um, on Baptism of the Lord Sunday. We turn to it again today with a slightly different emphasis in today's sermon. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beast, and the angels waited on him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came back to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. You have heard the ancient story. Let us listen now for the word of the Lord. There are two ways to hear most everything. We are living in the terrifying proof of that. Turn on Fox News and then switch to MSNBC and you'll think you're living in two different universes. Either the recent presidential election was a grand conspiracy of the deep state or it was the safest election in the history of the United States. Two ways of hearing everything. There are two ways of hearing the Bible. And the difference can be as dramatic, the outcome as divisive as our current political mood. There is a wooden, literal way, and there's another way to hear the Bible. There's a somewhat magical way and a mystical way. There's a way that spiritualizes every word, baptizing the stories in the grand light of something supernatural and miraculous, a divine plan touching everything, God orchestrating every plot, God ordaining every outcome. And there's another way, a way that locates a story of a long-gone people within their actual world. There sometimes failed working to find God within the religious and social, political and economic issues of their day. There's a way that sees those real stories of real people, even though they're centuries removed from us, they see them as our own story. Our own sometimes failed working to find God within the religious and social political, and economic issues of our day. 
You can hear these two ways from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. Either the creation narrative is literal, a pseudo-scientific play-by-play of the divine creator talking the world into being, or you can hear a story, a grand story of narrative and mythic beauty a story that has no concern for getting the science right since the message is about what matters, not about physical matter. And at the other end of the book, either the book of Revelation offers the same kind of play-by-play, a carefully concealed plot line of the last act of a play that some call apocalyptic premillennial dispensationalism, you know, how Jesus will return to consummate world history. Either it's that or the Apocalypse of John, the book's official title, is a message of hope sent to a specific people under extreme political persecution but told in shrouded symbolism so it transcends time, so it can stand as a last word the last word of God's good work in this world in every time and place. There are two ways to read from the beginning to the end and everything in between. And there are two ways to hear most of the religious words that we know, like sin and salvation, heaven and hell, redemption and repentance. That's our word for today, repentance. Oh, everybody loves to hear the preacher talk about repentance, don't you? No, I think it's probably one of those words that most people, even church people, don't like to hear. That may be because a lot of people only know one way to hear the word. I think it's safe to say that most people hear it like some old revival preacher used it. Repent or you're going to hell. Confess your sins and Jesus will forgive you. Get right or get left. Turn or burn. Yeah, that's actually a phrase from some revival preaching. Well, even if you don't go to that kind of church, you have undoubtedly heard all of that before. It's just in the air we breathe. Repentance is about guilt and personal sin and spiritual salvation. What else could the word mean? Before I tell you what else the word could mean, let me say that like both ways of hearing most things, there is truth there. There is an undeniable element of personal responsibility to which we are called. Repent. Yes, I'm talking to you. Repent. Confess your sins, the scripture says, and God who is faithful and just will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Now I know that's very churchy language, but the truth is I actually believe that. Human beings need to stop and look within. We all need to accept and acknowledge our failures, our misdeeds, yes, our sins. Acknowledging our own shortcomings is the first and necessary step to making things right. Now, you can call it good psychology if you want to. That's what it is. Call it what you may. Personal repentance is a necessary discipline on the journey to health and wholeness. 
And Jesus said, if someone has something against you, you go to that person and you seek to make amends. Jesus said you have to do that even before you can come to the church and bring your gift. You see, redemption isn't just about God. It doesn't just fall out of the sky. It's not as easy as you are loved, you are forgiven, so be at peace. Repentance is some of the hardest work we ever do. Forgive and you will be forgiven, but that's hard work. So repentance in this way of hearing it is important, even necessary. And I feel like it's part of my job to tell you that, even if you don't want to hear it today. I also think it's part of my job to tell you that that's only where it starts. That's only one way to hear the word repentance. And that way of understanding repentance, I'm sorry to say, is the easy way. The Russian philosopher and theologian Nicholas Berdyaev, who died in 1948, said, Christianity cannot be reduced to the individual salvation of separate souls. The understanding of Christianity exclusively as a religion of personal salvation would be the source of the greatest disorders and catastrophes in the Christian world. Those are strong words, words that would not be heard well by evangelicals within Christianity today, but surely they are true. To reduce the Christian faith just to a purely personal, individual pursuit would be to miss out of the message, most of the message of Jesus, and that message in line with much of the challenging and critical words of the Hebrew prophets long before Jesus. From start to finish, the Bible's message is this, it's not just about me. One of the earliest stories in our scripture, when Cain has killed his brother Abel out of jealousy and God comes looking for Cain, uh, looking for Abel, excuse me, God comes looking for Abel and Cain says, well, don't look at me. Am I my brother's keeper? The rest of the Bible is an answer to this question. And the answer is three words, absolutely, yes. I am my brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. It's not just about me. That's what faith teaches. It is certainly fine to take care of self, but the neighbor comes first. Now that is the world's perspective. I want to be first. Make me first. Me only. Me only first. That is the world's best advice. But you will never hear that in the Bible. And this is where repentance gets real and gets real difficult. More difficult than any personal acknowledgement of guilt. A theologian and author named John Shea says it this way. The center of Christian life is repentance. This does not mean that the distinguishing mark of the Christian is breast-beating, feeling bad about ourselves. This is not what Jesus means by repentance. Repentance is the response to grace that overcomes the past and opens out a new future. 
Repentance distinguishes Christian life as one of struggle and conversion and pervades it not with remorse but with hope. The message of Jesus is not repent. It is repent for the kingdom of God is near. We hear those very words in the text that I just read to you from Mark's gospel. The time is fulfilled, Jesus said, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Believe in the good news. Remember, two ways to hear everything. For many people, that good news just involves your personal, individual salvation. And as good as that news is and always will be, the good news is even better than that because Jesus came preaching a good news that is so much bigger than just me only first. In 2015, Amy and I preached through the Gospel of Mark. We spent the whole year. And as we were preaching through the Gospel of Mark, we were indebted to a scholar named Ched Myers for insights that open to us a completely new dimension of understanding the gospel. In his commentary of Mark's gospel, which is called Binding the Strongman, a political reading of Mark's story. Now, don't get hung up on the word political. That's a loaded word, especially today. But the word just comes from Latin, the, the Latin word polis. It just means people. And as I said at the beginning of this sermon, there is a way of reading that locates a story of a long-gone people within their actual world, their sometimes failed working to find God within the religious and social, political and economic issues of their day. There's a way that sees these real stories of real people as our own story. And that's what Ched Myers is doing in his commentary. He's locating Mark's gospel within the historical framework of the people of their day in order to help us here within our own historical setting. What Myers says is that the message of Jesus, a message of good news, was not a story about personal salvation faith as an individual pursuit as much as it was a new narrative altogether, an entirely new way of seeing and being in this world. This good news was a life lived with new values and a new vision, values and a vision that were very much at odds with the vision of the world. In his day, that world was framed with a military occupation by a foreign adversary, the world's only superpower. The values of the day were the worldview espoused by the Caesars of Rome, and their values and vision revolved around power and money, hierarchies that favored a few and oppressed the many, a domination system of insiders and outsiders, haves and have-nots, it was sexist and racist and nationalist. It sought to conserve the past in the present and to reject anyone who represented a threat to the status quo. Enter Jesus. 
of Jesus' entry into this tension-filled world, Ched Myers says in the prologue to Mark's gospel, Mark clears narrative space from among the weeds so that the seeds of a radically new order might be pressed into the weary soil of the world. This subversive story is what Mark entitles good news. Salvation is subversive because the good news of Jesus' message reorders the value system of this world. Salvation isn't for souls alone, but for societies. It isn't for a person, it is for a people. Repentance, which comes from the Hebrew word shub, means to turn around. It doesn't connote sin and guilt. It speaks of a physical action going one direction and then stopping and turning and going a completely different direction. It's a 180 degree turn, a new way of looking and seeing, of living and being. It's new values and a new vision, new commitments and different convictions. Herman Waitgen is a New Testament professor at San Francisco Seminary, and he says this of Jesus' baptism. It is a genuine act of repentance. It ends his participation in the structures and values of society. It concludes his involvement in the moral order into which he was born. The entire Jewish society as it is maintained by the institutions through which power is ordered. The totality of the Jewish Roman society construction of reality has been terminated. The death experience of repentance has redeemed Jesus from his comprehensive indebtedness and the prescribed ways and means of discharging his obligations. Jesus has become wholly unobliged to his society. Now many, maybe most American Christians are not even aware how radically at odds the structures and values of our society are to the love of God found in the way of Jesus. We have so wrapped the Christian flag within the American flag, many people cannot distinguish the two. We go about our days discharging our obligations to the ways and means of this society with little awareness of how our participation enables the status quo, the sexism, the racism, the nationalism that tramples the least of these and in the process numbs our own souls to the pain. Salvation is subversive. Repentance is revolutionary. Now, I understand that this may sound radical, even dangerous. It's a different way of hearing the word repentance. But what did you think you were getting yourself into when you were baptized or otherwise said you would follow Jesus? This good news got him killed. And if we can be honest about it, there's probably little difference in the value system of ancient Rome and our own. 
power, money, hierarchies of sexism, racism, nationalism, the myth of Roman exceptionalism, a fearful drive backed by military and political might to maintain the status quo at all cost. What did you think you were getting yourself into when you said you would follow Jesus? This Lenten season is about claiming some disciplines for our lives of faith. Today's discipline is repentance, the act of turning around. Now only you can answer what you need to turn from and what you need to turn to, but let me invite you to look carefully today and with the example and the strength of Jesus to make a turn. Do you need to turn from comfort to challenge, from money, whether spending it or hoarding it, to generosity, from judging to acceptance, from control to freedom, from impatience to contentment, from racism to anti-racism, from fear of the future to radical trust, from xenophobia to the welcome of the stranger, from the values of this society that we are so immersed in we may not even be aware of them, from the values of this society to a renewed commitment to follow the way of Jesus. The love of God found in the way of Jesus is not the way of this world, period. It is not. When Jesus was baptized by John, his repentance, Jesus' own turning to a new way made him a kind of outlaw to both the religious and the political rulers of the day. And it will do the same to you today. But our world needs some followers willing to be outlawed with him. May it be so. Amen.